start here and make sure that all of y'all can be heard. They're telling me I'm super loud, so let me quiet it down just a little bit. Okay, this is being recorded also on 97.3 KEPW local radio stations. I am Aisha Elliott, and this is Black Girl from Eugene. Welcome to my show. Um, today we have, I haven't even named this episode yet. That's how, that's how much this is happening. But this is Lane County Public Health series number two, two out of three. Um, and we are, we have two distinguished guests. <laughs> and um, my guests today are first Elisa. Now make, make sure I'm pronouncing your last name right. Mesh and Tubby. Mission Tubby. Mission Tubby. Okay. Delisa yeah. Mission Tubby from the director, executive director of Volunteers in Medicine. And am I getting this right? Have you been there since 2001? Yes, ma'am. You're celebrating 20 years. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> okay. And we also have Jennifer Webster here from Lane County Public Health Epidemiologist. And uh, you have recently worked on the 2020 Health Equity Report. Thank you so much for being here. Now, tell me, how long have you been with um, with Lane County? Uh, it'll be nine years in October. So y'all have wow. right. Congratulate y'all have really been in the work for a really long time. This is interesting. Okay, so see, I told y'all I'm gonna start going right off the top of my head. So this is nine years and twenty years. I find it very important. We're talking about Lane County's health disparities. We're talking about um, the success. We're talking about what's been going on in the county, what's been going on in the cities that we are in. Um, and Jennifer, you are in Eugene, right? Yep. Okay, and Delisa, you're in Springfield? I, I'm in, uh, we're in Springfield. The clinic is in Springfield. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, but you live in Eugene area though, right? I live in Eugene, uh-huh. Okay. So I'm wondering, with what you have seen and the changes that have been going on um, rapidly since 2020, um, and I, and what I, I'm in my mind because this is black girl from Eugene, right? I go straight to race race disparity. I go straight to ethnicity mm -hmm. and culture. So why why I refer back to, to 2020 is because I'm talking about the the breaking open of the, the race and uh, the conversation of race being a, a public health crisis, right? Right. The, the, now, I say breaking open because the conversation has been here, right? Yes. That yes. conversation has been here. But now the public is involved. More of the privileged, converse, privileged public, all, more white folks are coming to the table to talk about this yes. as something very real. Yes. So for both of y'all, like either one, how in nine years and in 20 years, and then the change that's happened since George Floyd, right? Just nationally, what have you? What has been going on in your fields? Um, in that, I mean, twenty years and nine years is a long time to, you know. But I can, I'm sure you can see something that shifted and something that went a different direction. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. So for for Delisa, what do you see that that's just been a, a major shift? I'll tell you now. The, the major shift that I've seen is the acknowledgement that it's there now. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people could say they feel it, but now we see it. Mm -hmm. And now the people that are coming as allies to help each other, they're saying, no, this is not okay. 
where I know they see it and they had, they had seen it years ago, mm-hmm. but now they're not just seeing it, they're doing something about it. Right. And so that's the change and that's what I see the shift is happening right there. So I am so excited to see that people are putting action with the talk. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now, when you now, Jennifer, is that the same thing for you up in the county, or what? Because I, you know, I've been working with. We'll talk. Okay, but Jennifer. <laughs> uh, well, how do you? How do you see it? I think. Uh, I mean, I what Felisa's saying too. People more willing to take action. I think the thing that's been really striking for me in the last like year is really the willingness in the professional space to name it to name structural racism as a root cause. Like if you look at, one of my one of the things I'm responsible for in my role at the county is writing the community health improvement plan and doing a community health assessment. Mm-hmm. And if you look at our community health assessment in 2013 and in 2016, compared to, and, and then we did our very first health equity report in 2017. And if you just look at the way that the disparities and the inequities are talked about in those reports compared to how it's talked about in this latest report. Like it's, so even the just the willingness to say, yeah, it's structural racism is actually what's causing this. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because, and I say it's amazing because we live in Oregon, right? <laughs> And to be honest, let's be, let's just put it out there for all the people across the country that listen to the show. Oregon has a very racist past, and and it's not when I say past, I'm not talking about like a hundred years ago. I'm talking like you know, black folks weren't allowed in the city of Eugene until the uh, mid '50s, right? So this is a very recent thing. So do you believe what are, either one of y'all do? What do you believe was the because I know both of you know that this conversation has been going on. Right? So what was the pushing, what was the tipping? Was it just new people coming in? Was it actually uh, the, the protest? Was it just the new president? I mean, what is it that actually was able, or was it the old president that really put it all in our face um, that tipped this over? Jennifer, go ahead and start, sweetie. <laughs> um. I mean, I think it's like a, a combination of all of the above, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think um, our, the Trump administration really activated a lot of people because um, some of his policies were just so blatantly racist mm-hmm. that like a lot of people who, you know, kind of vaguely aware that there's some structural racism going on here, suddenly they had to, it was like, whoa, there's some real... It's in your face. We're trying to implement new structural racism, you know, with this current administration. And so I think that is part of it. Um, I think, you know, the events around the summer last year with George Floyd's death and, you know, people getting super activated around that has really raised it to a level of awareness that hasn't existed before. So I think it's kind of been kind of a slow build and then suddenly, and then COVID happened and that was also like you know, all of the things in public health that we talk about causing these inequities were suddenly like front and center happening real time. And, you know, it was just like, it's not, it's not theoretical anymore. I mean, never really was, but it was, it's not like something that you learn about in a book or in a research article. Suddenly it's happening in our community right now. I think, I think the difference here, I mean, what I hear is when, like you said, professionally, when the white folks, and I'm saying this very, very straight up, when the white folks in government 
have to then be pressed against the wall to say there's something that we have to do. We have to act. We can't with everything going on outside this government. Outside, we can't act like we don't see it with with changing the nation. And it's kind of the same. And I'm gonna let you answer too, Delisa. But I wanted to say it's like it's kind of the same with the with the verdict of George Floyd. Like, I mean, of of um, Chauvin. All of the things that had to line up so perfectly to get everyone to see that there was no wiggling out of this, right? You had to have the witness, and you had to have the, the film, and you had to have his hand in his pocket, and you had to have, you know what I mean? Um, and you had to have the whole nine minutes, and the whole, and then you had to have the pandemic, I mean, all of the pandemic, people watching it, and everyone, it all had to be there for us to get where we're at, right? So that, I think that's interesting that you line that up in the same way. Go ahead, Delisa, sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna piggyback on what uh, Jennifer said, because it's so true. Everything came together, but this time, think about it. We witnessed the murder. That's right. We saw it. That's right. We saw it with our own eyes. So, witnessing it, there was no denying this, to say maybe it happened this way or maybe it didn't because mm-hmm. we saw how it happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it puts everybody in the uh, professional community on notice that okay how are we going to deal with this right we can't even turn our heads and say it didn't happen because we saw it right so now i think what really took place was that we became the eyewitness all of us became the eyewitness to what happened and so we couldn't turn it off but then like you said covid hit mm-hmm I myself lost family members. I lost my mother-in-law a week before Christmas to COVID. Oh my God. I lost an uncle right before Christmas, her brother. And it all started at a funeral. And then we've lost our cousins. And, And so this is all back in Oklahoma. My husband's Native American, he's Choctaw. And it lets me see the disparities from what COVID did and everything that happened lined up just so perfectly that we couldn't turn our heads from it. We couldn't say, well, no, that only happens here. COVID became personal to some of us because Mm -hmm. of what we saw. Uh, George Floyd's murder became personal because we were eyewitnesses to it. Mm -hmm. This that happened last week with the um, the guilty verdict there was really no wiggling out of that Mm-mm. and so now what we have to do as people is to say how is this not going to happen again on our watch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now for me I'm one of the I hate to admit my age but I'm becoming an elder of the community <laughs> where I have a grandson that I worry about and I, I am scared for mm-hmm. as he moves forward because as we see what's happening, there's still things still going on right. in the world right. that will keep him from seeing his full potential if people have their way about it. Mm-hmm. And so now where I'm at with all of this is no more being nice and quiet because a lot of people mistook my quietness 
or my kindness for weakness. Mm. This is the time we have to speak out. Mm -hmm. We have to protect those that are coming forward. And so there's no more Mr. Nice Guy. We have to be fruitful in what we're saying Mm -hmm. and we have to be diligent in our walk with this because it's no longer can me or you, Aisha, do it together. Now we need the Jennifers that is in here with us Mm -hmm. and we all have to link arm in arm and fight for our communities. And uh, that's where I'm at with it. So that's, I, I am loving this conversation. Thank you. You're so welcome. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy y'all are both here. Um, I Because what you just said, I'm going to ask, um, because I want people to understand, Jennifer, what you actually do. And then what I'm going to do is ask a question uh, based on what you just said, Delisa, because I the nuances of racism, I what I do for a living is not this podcast, actually. This is what I do. I don't know if y'all have heard the history of Black Girl from Eugene, but this was started off as a healing project for me and then people started to listen and then it grew and grew and then now it's what it is right and now it's a healing project for the community so um that's how it based but i do on the outside of here i do equity race cultural uh uh, um inclusion education and I advise, you know, businesses and and nonprofits, and you know, and this is what I do. That's what I do for a living, right? And so it's this education piece. So what I do, and exactly with what you're saying, Delisa, is I'm talking to majority white folks, right, and the majority CEOs and and uh, you know directors who want to be in this conversation and really don't know how. They have the toolkit. They know they're like, okay, so I know I'm supposed to look at my policies. I know I'm supposed to look at my hiring practices. I know I'm supposed to, you know, look at what the barriers are um, and maybe the education, you know, and I know I'm supposed to look at all these things. And I say, okay, that's true, but then do you know what that means, right? When you when you say inclusion, do you understand what that means for you? Because people start focusing on black and brown people and indigenous folks, but they don't focus on what has to change within the, within the community to, to welcome actual inclusion, right? So you can't just be bringing black and brown people in and be like, yay, inclusive. That's not how that works. And so we have to really talk to people who are wanting to do this work and say, are you understanding, right? So that we cannot have to go 10 steps back when the, the, when the workplace is a toxic workplace, right? And then we're like wondering why it didn't work. So my whole focus is intention and impact, right? So yes. when we, and this is why I'm, I'm throwing it to Jennifer with what you do as an epidemiologist, I know that uh, I'd like you to explain what that is for the people. And also in my, in my follow-up is how, how are we quantifying nuance? How are we quantifying microaggression? Who are, you know, I'd like to know what the approach is to what this whole new reporting, you know, when racism has actually been deemed a crisis, but then who is defining it? And so that's what I would like more uh, to hear about. So please explain what it is, first of all, because I know people be like, epidemic who? So let's see what that is. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll start with what I do. So, um, an epidemiologist in general, 
um, looks at the data on health, it looks at outcome data, um, root cause data, makes connections between root causes and outcomes, and really just looks at, looks for patterns, right? I'm looking at, you know, if a whole bunch of people over here have X characteristic, and then how many of them are developing Y outcome, and is there a strong link between the X and Y? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's basically what an epidemiologist does. Um, what I tell my niece and nephews when I tell them my job, I tell them I make crap. <laughs> so I really, um, you know, like public health, I think one of the other things that COVID has really revealed is that public health in this country is really under-resourced. And so when it comes to data in the local public health department, we really rely on secondary data sources from the state and from the feds. That, so they collect the data that we then can parse out and look at. If we're lucky, we can look at it at the county level and say, okay, like, this is what it looks like in our county. So most of my job is actually finding data and then trying to get it at our local level and then present it in a way to the community that makes sense and can actually tell a story about our health. Wow. So that's mostly my job. And you mentioned earlier, I showed like one of my frustrations is that we don't have good data at the local level, right? We rely on these state and federal data systems that do not collect data in a way that represents subpopulations within Lane County. So we can get a good picture of what the county overall looks like, but mm-hmm. if I want to look at something by zip code, if I want to look at by race and ethnicity, if I want to look at by disability status, that data becomes very difficult to interpret because there's huge margins of error because it's not collected for that purpose. And so while the health equity report definitely illustrates that there are disparities and inequities in our community based on race, ethnicity, and disability, it doesn't tell us much more than that. You can't really read a whole lot into Mm. that data because it's just not great data. So one of the things that I would really love to do if we could get resources to do it, is to do, develop our own local data systems involving the community. I would really like, you talk about getting at the nuances of microaggressions and how racism is really played out locally, and that actually would require a lot of qualitative data right. before we could do any kind of quantitative data collection. And so, and that I think, in my from my perspective, would be a really um, important project to engage the community with but we have to be resourced to do it because like, I can't I can't do it on top of everything else that I'm responsible for right now. And so we need to like, we really just need the resources to be able to build. I would love to have us have a, a whole team of folks that was just partnering with the community on data collection and data analysis and reporting and all of that. Wow. My dream. Wouldn't that be something if we could figure out how to put that into a, a grassroots scenario, right? And you really get on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, Delisa, how does that affect what you're doing at uh, Volunteers in Medicine? Like, do, with, uh, because, and, and first of all, people who are listening, quantitative and qualitative. Qualitative is the, the for lack of, like, to make this super short, is the experience. Quantitative is the number <laughs> to it. I mean, basically. So, um, so well, how is that affecting you and what you're doing with Volunteers in Medicine and the, and the population that you're working with? Well, you know, it's hard to get clean data. I agree with uh, Jennifer about the funding and such because um, at Volunteers in Medicine, they we serve people who fall between 85% to 300% of the federal poverty level. Yes, okay. And so when you say poverty level, people are saying, well, 
that's not really poor if it's 300% of the federal poverty level. Well, it's not that you're saying that they're poor. What we're saying is that they're underserved. And when we're saying underserved, it's with the insurance. Some of them have insurance, but the deductibles are so high, they cannot get in to see a provider or to uh, get actual good care without having to go to the ERs and such. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when we have the patient population that comes in to see us, over 30% of our patient population is Spanish speaking. Mm -hmm. And so there's barriers right there because a lot of them are scared to come in and give their data and their information to us because they don't know who are you sending this to? Who are you telling this to? Are you giving this to ICE? What's happening here? Mm -hmm. And then some people come in to us that are able to be seen, but they're saying, well, I, I have an income. I work, but I can't feed my family. I can't buy them clothing. I can't pay for their school books or things like that that they need. And so the quantitative, qualitative, it really uh, affects in all areas, no matter whether we're a free clinic or not, it still affects the patients that are coming in the door because one, there's the mistrust, mm -hmm. two, there's the fear, and three, those that are actually being honest about it, they really truly can't afford access to medical care. Right, right. And so that, it, it's a uh, conundrum, if you if you really want to know how I feel. It's a conundrum. Mm -hmm. And we just want if I could, I'd open the door and say, everybody that needs help, come on in the door. But that's not feasible for right. our community and such. So I love what she was saying about the funding part of it, because... Uh, it takes a village to take care of all of us, mm -hmm. of our community and such. And somehow, until that funding gets here, we're going to always be behind the eight ball and always hustling to try to take care of our people. And I say our people because our community mm -hmm. is our people, no matter who it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, it's resonating with me with what you're saying with the, the, the trust in the system because, you know, Actually, Martin and I last week, if y'all didn't catch part one of this series of part three, we talked about the history of um, the, the healthcare in, industry with people of color. And, and it ain't cute. It's not good. It's not good, right? Um, we got a whole lot of very intentional work that needs to be done to repair the damage that has been done with these communities, and especially as a government uh, um, entity when it comes to like the public health space it's very you know it's very number driven right it's very much how many people in your household how you, you get two choices there's not it's not culturally relevant blah blah it's like very much right. like within these these very um applications that fit type thing you know um and then of course if you, you have that front you like you just said the immigration uh, people within immigration they're not coming in droves this is like scary to know who is doing what and who's going to be taking them off you know, in some crazy raid, um, and the truth of it is, like, where is that information going? What do you? What is it in the history of healthcare? Knowing that I'm a black woman, and you want to know how many kids I've had, and how many, kids, and then you want to know my background, and I'm going, what are you using that for? Right? 
Because in the history, in the context, it's not a it's not a weird question, actually, right? It's actually an informed question. And so, but if, and if we don't actually have people even at the at the clinic level saying this is what we're doing with it, this is how we're funded, this is how they're able to explain it with compassion, culturally competent, being able to get the get the information in a safe and in way. You're, you are relying on something that doesn't even represent us at that point. Like, you're relying on something coming from a different direction, and we really can't get much coming from this direction for lots of reasons, right? And it's not just the funding, but it's also the history. But funding's major. And I want to say this because I used to work for the state of Oregon and for eight years, and um, I had fantastic insurance, right? <laughs> fantastic insurance. Paid very little. They gave you lots of everything, right? Um, and uh, when I stopped working for the state of Oregon on a medical leave, I didn't have that insurance anymore, right? And I had to go to state insurance because I was no longer employed. I was on this. I was on leave, a uh, medical leave, right? So I had to get insurance from somewhere. And um, let me tell you what: as having a nursing degree, ha having worked in clinics since I was very young, 19 on up to like 30, before I started working for the state. Having had three children, having been a black woman who has been well-resourced in insurance, to switch over and see how people are treated on this state insurance, how, what they are given as options, when I know damn well there's another option, right? <laughs> and having to know like what is really given as as like treatment is very very humbling and i don't think a lot of people quite understand what is the possibility when funding is not there for people who are having to rely on the county or having to rely on the state if we're not well funded i mean this really means the difference of a surgery for somebody and and you know some medication for the rest of their lives that's going to damage it. I mean it's 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 night and day. It's night and day. So um, I just wanted to give y'all like I mean because on the ground it's like I don't know that people really realize right. And and with COVID and um, the quarantining, it was like this for some people to be in the situation I was in where you went from yes. well employed yes to navigating something that looks so alien. To what you know, and you're like, you y'all treat people like this every day, <laughs> right? You know, and, and not to not to like shame the people who are doing the work because I know they're frustrated too. They'd like to do more, you know. Uh, uh, having to having to tell a mother who's having a hard time breastfeeding that she only has the choice of formula, right? And only these two types of formula on WIC, those type of things. That's I'm sure that can't that can't sit well. With people who are who are wanting to help, right? So um, that's my little tangent. Okay. <laughs> so I wanted to, um, with your job, Delisa, as as um, executive director, finance is a major part of what you do for volunteering volunteers yeah. of medicine. So with with what um, Jennifer is saying and what you're saying about the funding, where are you getting? Where are you getting the boost? If you are getting a boost, and where are you getting the pushback that you're still like needing some some um, I don't know work behind some legislation yeah. to push behind? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, um, we're funded by three ways. Okay. We're funded by um, 
private donations, grants, foundations, and special events. Mm. Well, with COVID, that killed our special events because yeah. you couldn't bring three to 400 people together to uh, make an uh, ask for them for money. Then with the private donations and such, one, people thought because uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act and such came, everybody had insurance and there was not going to be any need for anybody to need insurance anymore, which we found out real quickly. That wasn't true because you're always going to have those that fall through the cracks, mm -hmm. no matter what. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to donors, we have to realize that those who donated for, and we're a 20 year organization, some of them have died. Attrition has been a hard uh, road to hold, you know? And so it was kind of like, how do we do this? So what we have to do is to keep putting ourselves out there and letting people know, we need your support. Mm -hmm. But then think about it. People that had the money, they lost some of their money too. And the younger kids that are coming into their parents and grandparents' uh, money and such, well, they understand and that their parents love volunteers in medicine and it's a great organization, but nah, that's not my bag. That's mm -hmm. not what I interested in funding any longer. I always say now that if it's not kids or puppies, it's a hard sale to sell health insurance or health health care mm -hmm. because when you've not needed the health care and you haven't been in that position to understand the need for having health care, you're not going to be able to want to give the way it used to be. But now what we're seeing now, COVID has brought a name or a face to the name mm -hmm. and to healthcare. Mm -hmm. So it's now opening people's eyes to see that, oh, there is a need for us. There is a need for our dollars. There is a need for us to take care. And the question is, am I my brother's keeper? Comes to my mind a lot. Yes, we are mm -hmm. because we need to take care of each other. Mm -hmm. So the hard part of volunteers in medicine now is to go out and let the community know that, yes, we need your help. Yes, every dollar counts. But then we're not the only ones that are out there asking for those dollars and needing those dollars. Right. So how do we ask someone to say, no, you can't do this to take care of the kids with the relief nursery or something. You need to come to Volunteers in Medicine. What we're having to do now is to tell our story, show what we're doing to help the community, and then relying on the community to decide where those dollars go. Right, and that that is a tough, that is just a tough yeah. position. I. Yeah, I was thinking about how to connecting this and like with the epidemiology and with what you're saying and connecting these things. And I was thinking about the insurance coverage and, you know, the fact that after 21 years old, when you said if it's not kids or what, after 21, you know, they cut vision care. Unless you have, you have issues with your eyes, they cut vision. You can't get glasses. You can't get nothing. So how, when we're talking about these people who are trying to 
go back into the job force. They can't even get proper health care yes. to perform the job. And then we act like, oh, they don't want to work. It's like, um, do we check to see if they can do this and that and that? And it's not because, I mean, it's not because they don't want, this is our public health, right? So um, I want to throw it back. Um, Jennifer, also, like, I want, and, and also, obviously, Delisa, I want to know, when we, as we've come to this, this point where the, um, our commissioners have agreed that, yes, and they're going to put it on the books, that, yes, racism is a public health crisis. And I think I said it earlier. And then, so what I would like to know, what in your world, like in the in the professional world, is there conversation around what that actually means, what that what that entails, what the impact is uh, for what for what you guys are doing? Um, and for me, like what what for what I'm doing, it doesn't mean a whole lot, right? <laughs> so I want to know what it means for what for uh, for where you guys are both working. Either of y'all can um, jump into that. Jennifer, I'd love to hear you, girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just say, um, I am really excited that the resolution that the commissioners agreed upon actually does have some actionable steps yes. in it. And um, it's also really exciting that, you know, in public health, we've known for a while that there are some areas that we really need to work on. A, a lot of it is community engagement. We need to be better at engaging the community. Um, we really need to be better at engaging the community with data, which is why I'm super excited that you want to be on your show. Yeah. Um, and you know, and and we also internally need to make sure that our staff is culturally competent and understands how to work with a diverse public to understand like the the history and the structural racism that you know impacts people in different communities and especially people in communities that they might not themselves be from and having to be real well versed in how to navigate that and so those are some of the things that we've been working on and so it's really gratifying to see the commissioner say yes we want you to do this work and we want you to do this work more and deeper and there's also I, I just read it like really briefly yesterday, so I don't, I'm not very familiar with all the actions in there, but I mm -hmm. did see that there is part of it is about resourcing that work too. So that's also really exciting to see that that's happening. Um, I think, you know, with COVID, the public health has really, because we have known some of these things for a while, we were really well positioned to really start doing some of that with our response to COVID. So I think we built some really great relationships with a lot of community organizations that now the work for us is to how do we like take those relationships and build them up further and make, that, make those relationships really a vehicle for all of us doing our work and supporting the community better and more into the future even when hopefully someday very soon COVID is not so front and center for all of us. And so I think and I, I think the health department, speaking from my experience and the people that I work with, I think we're very excited to do that work. And so, you know, it's just a matter of really being able to resource it so that we can dedicate the time because the, the work that we have done so far is just stuff that, you know, people have been able to do on top of whatever their regular job is. And so we really need oh. to make that it needs to be resourced in a way so that it is part of everybody's regular job to be doing this work. And I, I feel really heartened that the county is making a very public commitment to make that a reality. 
So this has been a committee, and we need an FTE. We need a full-time employee group working on this situation. I see. <laughs> I mean, honestly, right? Right. <laughs> uh, so well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lisa. <laughs> you know, I was just going to say, Jennifer, you give me so much hope. I hear you. I see your passion for what you're doing, and I hear your uh, your your plea because you said we need more funding. We need that. You want the data. You have the data. You're willing to put in the work for the data, and that gives me hope right there. Because one thing I have seen is that. We don't have to continue working in the silos that we've been in all of these years. It's time for us to come out, raise our head up, and then all of us say, this is what we're doing. And we're being transparent now. And that's one thing I think that's happened over this past year has done. The transparency is there. And now that the commissioners have put this resolution out, it's up to us now to put it into motion mm -hmm. because it's out there now. So it's time for us to say, okay, you said it. Here we go. Mm -hmm. We're going to start doing it. So, uh, Aisha, I think this program and what you're doing, you're reaching an audience that a lot of us will never have a chance to reach mm -hmm. or will never be able to tell them our story. And you're allowing us to give our story. I appreciate this more than you know because now it just makes my heart flutter because it lets me know that the work that I do is not in vain. Oh, so thank you so much. Enjoy this. <laughs> you know, thank you so much. Yeah, I know, right? You just made don't make me do all that right now. <laughs> but you know, it, and it comes really from the heart because the truth of it is, is that. People don't understand that people are trying to work this through. And we have, we, when you're in the system, trying to create the system that, that, trying to create a system that actually feeds the people, there are actual real people behind that who are also yes. frustrated, right? And you, like what Jennifer was saying, I, there's lots of stuff I want to be doing that, that isn't happening, right? How to look at, um, when we say crisis, like we're hoping that the more nuanced, the more who's going to be doing the work, we want it to come through at 100% of efficacy for the group, well, for the community. We want this to work. It's not the spinning wheel so that we can say we've done it. Both of y'all's commitment to the work shows that. You know, nine years, 20 years in, the, in, in, this, uh, in this community, my work that I've been, other than the podcast, for years and years, I mean, you know, I've been trying to speak the word for 20 years about DEI, you know, um, equity and inclusion as a black woman is my life. Like, I'm always fighting to be heard and seen and, and, and valued, right? And so the, what you said earlier in this, in this uh, episode here was, was really true. It's for the very first time I'm actually bumping into people who would never engage in a race conversation or race relations, right? Or never have, like, even if it's uncomfortable, they just wouldn't, they just bypass it right around. Now, I think there's a lot more people that I can bump into and we can have a conversation about it or at least they're thinking about it. It's on their purview. They're like, trying to navigate however well or clumsy or not. I don't 
don't care. It's navigating. We're there. Amen. Right? We're there. Thank God we are there, right? So, you know, um, I really want to thank both of y'all for your time. I, I was trying to make sure that I had... Is there anything that you wanted to say, Jennifer and Elisa, that you wanted to make sure that the public is actually... We've said a lot about just understanding how this work goes down. I would love to know... Um, I guess because it just started, there's probably not a whole lot of work, like you're saying, yet. There are some steps that they're saying, uh, Jennifer, about how to do and what they'll do to, to um, support um, that legislation. But I'm wondering, like, what is, what, what's the data now about the health for, for black and brown folks in this community? Like, what is it about? Is it just, like you said earlier, is it just like, living people in their house like I mean what is it based on is it hard can I mean what do you what do you look at gosh that's a lot I know right <laughs> oh and your closing statements yeah <laughs> so. um, I'll just I'll just say a couple of things one I'll just say the key findings from the health equity report that I've been sharing with folks are that like inequities are real and they exist in Lane County and they're different for different groups of people different groups experience them differently so like you'll see like some folks are doing worse in some areas and other folks are doing worse in other areas and every racial and ethnic group in Lane County has an inequity in some way. Um, two, the data, we need better data because we can't tell a really deep story about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's like the, the data that we have shows that there's definitely inequities, but we need better data if we're gonna really understand what those inequities are like and what they're felt like on the ground for those communities, Yeah. yeah. right? Um, and so I really encourage folks, it's up on the Lane County Public Health website in our data and report section. You can get to the link, the report's all online. And, um, you know, people are, I would love for a gazillion folks to send me emails and say, hey, I was looking at your report and I didn't understand that to you, because that would be fantastic. Um, and then about the, the racism as a public health crisis, I mean, they really just literally just did that past week. So, yeah. but some of the things that have been happening, so we, the county several years ago hired an equity and access coordinator and she's been doing incredible work um, of really getting the county leadership on board with addressing racial inequities in Lane County, not just in public health, but across the board. Nice. So that, okay. That's already there. and. I'm really hopeful that this new resolution will get her some more staff as well. Um, Public Health also in their um, emergency response center just also hired a health equity officer, someone whose job and role it is in the emergency response to really make sure that our response is responding to the inequities that we know exist in our community. So that to me is really heartening. And they're, you know, the, the especially the vaccine branch of the emergency response has been very, very committed to ensuring that distribution of vaccine is equitable in Lake County. So we're not doing it perfect by any stretch. We have a lot of work to do, but it's really heartening to see that happening. And I think for me, I think like Delisa, the, the really heartening thing for me is the, the number of conversations that are just being really transparent and open about structural racism and institutional racism as a root cause for all of the issues that we're talking about all the time in our community. And like to see those conversations happening out in the open and not in this sort of, well, you know, disparity, that's the problem right. kind of way is really heartening. So I have a lot of hope that, you know, I don't I don't have any expectation that we're gonna solve this anytime soon, but I have a lot of hope that, that we're doing we're on the right path and we're doing really good work. 
Like, what's the, the process of, of watching the after effects of this? Because we're still very experimental. We're still, like, trying to figure out how this really works. So I, I'm like, I'd like to know where I need to report. I had a severe headache for five days. <laughs> but I'm not saying nobody. I, I, I don't want to discourage anybody from getting the shot. Get the shot. But I'm just saying I would like to complain. Okay. <laughs> So, thank you both so much. I'm really happy I even just got to meet you. I know I met you, Delisa, very briefly in a talk I gave really quickly, but um, Jennifer, it's so nice to have you on my show. Delisa, it's such, so nice to see your face and have you on my show. I hope we can talk again in other circumstances, but... Yes. Yes, but the fact that y'all, the knowledge that y'all brought, I know, I know is rich for my uh, listeners, and I'm hoping it gets spread far and wide so that people can really be informed about where we, what we could, what we're trying to do here and a little bit of the barriers a little bit of the of the green lights and that we're still very present and hopeful i think that's really important to know thank yes. you thank you so thank much you. Yeah, so just, yeah you're so welcome